I just think it's really cool that here we are in, am I picking up okay? Yeah. We're, we're in little old Idaho, in this little <laughs> Idaho group, and yet we have this great panel of people who have all kinds of expertise and knowledge and um, experience in the industry, whether it's um, writing or publishing or marketing, um, that's crucial these days also. So I'm going to start with um, having asking each one of them to spend, okay, I'll, I'll give you one minute <laughs> to um, just tell a little bit about your writing, publishing history. I know it's going to be harder for you, Robin, with your <laughs> lengthy history. I can history. speak fast. <laughs> okay. Yeah, if you have to speed talk, that's okay, which I know Lisa is capable of doing that. <laughs> So I'm Lisa Phillips and I write Romantic Suspense um, and my first book contract was with Harlequin, Love Inspired Suspense and that was uh, October 2012 and then it came out in May 2014 and um, since then I, five, <laughs> Five, Love and Spar Suspense, the six, number six is August, and then I've self-published four, five full-length novels and two short stories, I think two, or is it three? It's three. So, in two, just over two years. So, I write really fast. <laughs> yes, she does. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm Angela Strong. Uh, my first book came out in 2010. It was um, in the Love Finds You series, which was written by a whole bunch of different authors and set all across the nation. So mine was Love Finds You in Sun Valley, Idaho, which is kind of cool. And um, then I went on and I wrote some women's fiction and I wrote a children's series for ages 8 to 12, uh, the Water Fight Professional series, which has been really fun. And I just sold one to Harlequin, so uh, that'll come out in February. Oh. And then I, I wrote with Lisa and mm -hmm. Heather, who's not here, we did a um, novella. Anthology. Anthology, yeah. mm -hmm. which has been really fun too. And um, my, first, my very first book that came out in 2010, um, that line has started to be made for movies. For, they had some for Up TV, and now um, Hallmark's looking at them. So I got my rights back for that one and I'm re-releasing that. That came out in February and I, I'm writing two sequels to it, the, like the brothers' romances. So that's been really fun to have that. Just in case mine gets made into a movie, then people will see it and be like, hey, I want to read more books by her. So. <laughs> <laughs> my name is Peter Lavelle and in 2011 I won Operation First Novel, which was a publishing contract and $20,000. And uh, it was a historical fiction. And then my second novel um, was a Western. And it's gone on to win a few awards and finaled in um, the Christian Small Publishing Award. Um, as of lately, uh, a few weeks ago, I won Meridian Library's Author of the Year Award, which is a lot of fun. So it, Christian uh, going into the secular market. Uh, I'm Robin Lee Hatcher, and I'm currently working on my 77th book. Um, I've been published since 1984. I need to write fast. Writing since 81. I don't write fast anymore. It'll come, it'll happen to you too. So. Everything. Um, 
I, I did 30 books in the general um, market before God got a hold of my heart, and um, I've been writing Christian fiction ever since, um, women's fiction and, and both historical and contemporary romance. Um, so I, I guess my, I'll finish up my minute by saying my goal is to be able to keep writing until I'd like to die at the keyboard, just have my head hit the keyboard, <laughs> and then let my daughters finish writing my book. Awesome. <laughs> you be buried with QWERTY I, on your yeah. <laughs> So anyway, I, I hope that my mind stays that sharp, and my mom lived to be 96, so I should have a good number of years left before that head hits the keyboard. <laughs> I'm Patrick E. Craig. Um, I've been a writer all my life. Uh, most of my writing in my youth was in the music industry. I was a songwriter and published songwriter and wrote with some folks back then. And then in the early 80s, uh, I came back to the Lord and went into the ministry. I was in the ministry for 20 years or so and retired from that in 2003. And cast about and decided I really wanted to do what I'd always wanted to do, which was to write books. So I started writing. I partnership published uh, my first book in 2007. Uh, and then in 2011, I got a contract with Harvest House, and I wrote three Amish fiction books for them. I'm one of about six men who write Amish fiction. <laughs> and. Uh, then I continued on with my series after that series was done uh, and wrote, and I'm writing a new series now, which is a continuation of that series, and I'm self-publishing them. I'm also self-publishing uh, a children's series, which will be out at the end of this month, the first book in, in that series. And so I'm just hoping, like Robin, to keep writing until the Lord comes or I go. <laughs> I guess that makes me the comedian who comes up after the announcement of the death. <laughs> we had that joke earlier. You're dying here, right? Yes. You know, after that list of accolades, I have nothing to say. <laughs> My name is Ray Ellis. I am a. Uh, I have five books published. Three are mysteries set right here in the Treasure Valley. The Nate Richards mysteries, police uh, thrillers. I have a science fiction book that was published earlier this year, Kraken. And I'm working on part two of that one now. That will be hopefully released the first of next year, and that's going to be The Shadow of the Serpent. It's a uh, apocalyptic tale of the rise of the Antichrist and the system set in a, a distant future. Mm -hmm. uh, so far, it's been getting good reviews, and so pretty good that way. Also, a, uh, a partner in a publishing company, NCC Publishing, is a partnership publishing company. And we specialize in helping people realize their dreams, is what we like to look at, is that we uh, there's a lot of writers who have the desire to go further but don't really know how to take that next step. And so my team, we get together to help them smooth out the rough places in their writing, uh, to learn the craft, and then we partner with them to the degree that they need us to get their work into the market. And so that's what we do. Uh, it's been good. I've been working here as a police officer in this valley for the last 20 years. i got almost 30 years total behind the badge. Uh, about 25 years as an ordained minister and married to the same woman for the last 33 years and she still calls me honey, so we're okay. <laughs> That'll preach. <laughs> well, thank you all. Um, the first question is for you, Ray. Can you just um, give us a definition, a clarification, what's the difference between 
partner publishing, traditional publishing, indie publishing, all these terms we throw around these days? I'll give you my definition because I, what I found is that as I've spoken to different people, there's, there are slight variances, slight differences in how it's looked at. But basically what we're looking at, when we say partnership publishing, what we mean is simply that. We yoke up with you and we find exactly where you are, what you need done, and we partner with you to get that done. Um, as far as the cost is concerned, we will itemize out the cost of the project uh, and we'll, we'll find out what that cost is and we split it directly in half. The company assumes half that liability, you assume half of it, and then we go from there. And the way we uh, proceed from that point is uh, all profits are then shared up into a predetermined point and then the company takes less and less and less of the, the earnings until the publisher, the author then has the majority control. We maintain some income to continue with marketing and things like that, but it's down around. By the time the contract comes out, it's uh, designed to be about 5%, 3 to 5% is what we would maintain of that contract after a while. So it's not. Uh, so that's the major difference is how it works. As far as the traditional publishing, I'm going to speak a little out of my depth, but basically when we have a traditional publishing company, uh, you would sell your manuscript to them. And there's, there's a lot of control and issues that the company then takes, uh, takes over for you. Uh, with the partnership publishing, there's a lot more, you have a lot more input as to how things happen. Uh, you get to speak into the process is how it goes. Uh, with us, we, we maintain the, the last word because we're gonna put our name on it so we have a certain standard that we wanna maintain and keep. So if you drew a cover in, in your back room and wanted to slap that on the front of the book, that's probably not gonna happen. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's gonna be edited and all those kind of things. It goes through several stages of, of editing and proofing and, and all those uh, things to get, get done. But as far then as the, the indie, you own it all. And when you say you're indie, you're driving, you're, you're doing it. You, I like to think of it as being a, you may not be the one who does all the work, but you're the, sub, you're the contractor and then you're hiring subcontractors to do the individual work, so you assume all that liability. The beauty of it is, is that you have all the control. So you get to set the standard, you get to say what is and what's not. And that is the main strength that, that I understand it to be, is the Indies, that you have that final say-so in all those aspects. So in a nutshell, that's how I see the difference between Indie publishing, traditional, and then the partnership publishing as we do it at NCC Publishing. Any other comments? on that question. Uh, somebody asked, how do they know? How do they decide which direction they want to go? Any thoughts? Well, the beauty of traditional publishing is that somebody pays you in advance up front, <laughs> yeah. and, um, and you work, and uh, then you have to earn it back. Um, which many of us don't on oftentimes. Um, so you've got the money that is supporting you. It's guaranteed. Um, but, uh, I mean, you, like Ray said, there's, there's drawbacks, but, but that is the, the beauty of traditional publishing. Um, I am the support of my family. And so I do prefer traditional publishing so that I know when money's coming in and how much it's going to be. Um, I have three 
indie published books. Just I've just got them on Kindle. I haven't had time to to do any print or anything. Um, and that's nice to pop in and see that I made you know fifty eight dollars today. Um, but um, when you're the support, it helps. <laughs> it helps to know what your income is and and what's expected and how you're going to get it and, and so forth. Um, but if, if traditional publishing disappeared from me, I'd go into indie whole, whole hog. I, you know, I just would. I'll just mention that a lot of authors are doing both now, mm -hmm. and that's called hybrid, what Lisa was talking about. Yeah. yeah. So doing both is considered hybrid, and you can do that. And a lot of authors are because there's money in both. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the biggest difference probably for me is the traditional contracts with Harlequin, you get that um, chunk when you sign the contract, they'll, they'll give you a chunk of your royalties, and then usually when I turn the book in, they'll give me another chunk of it, and then past the publishing date, then quarterly I'll get like a statement and royalty check. Um, but they can like hold money back um, for books that got returned from the store and all kinds of stuff. It's just really complicated and <clears throat> can't really understand it. But the biggest difference probably for me is that Harlequin will pay, I think it's like less than 5% on most of the, they have a lot of different channels that they'll sell books in, but my cut is like, I think the highest one is like 5 or 6% per book. Whereas with my self-published stuff, I'm getting 75% of the same amount. So I can sell way less books and make way more money. So that's kind of the biggest thing for me is that the rate, the royalty rate that you earn. thing I like about indie publishing is versus uh, traditional publishing, and I've done both, uh, is that you control the schedule. Uh, with a traditional publisher, um, you could sell them your book in 2011, which I did, and it came out in 2013. Mm -hmm. And uh, with my independently published book, I started it in January and published it in August. And so I was in control of the schedule. Uh, Robin's right, there's a great deal of security in getting that check in the mail. But there's also... Uh, a great deal of fun in controlling your own destiny. Yeah. And uh, one thing about indie publishing that you have to remember if you're really serious about going into it, that the main thing that you must do is if you're going to publish your books independently, you got to think like a publisher. You have to think like a professional publisher. Mm -hmm. So when I published my first book, I hired the guy who did the covers for my traditionally published books so that I would keep the same design elements. It was pricey, but it was well worth it mm -hmm. because people recognized I had built a fan base with my first three books. And so when this book came out, they recognized it as being me and they bought it. And so, and also I hired Ray's company to do all the formatting and do the final uh, go around on just a kind of an eyeballing it for proofing so that uh, when I got this back I knew that it was as close to having been done at a professional publishing company as it could be and that's really important if you're going to do it you have to think like a publisher and it, there's a million books out there that are self-published 
and they have terrible covers, and they, and they, and that nobody proofed them, and nobody edited them, and they're sitting around number two million on the Amazon sales list. Mm -hmm. So if you want to sell books, you have to start there. And the, the other thing too, when it comes to the partnership problem that speaks to the same element as the indie, is that you have to do the work. That's part of the partnership uh, publishing agreement, is that when that book is finished, the work begins. When we put that finished product in your hand, the work really begins. And you have to hit the ground, you have to do the marketing, you have to do all those things. And we share in that. Uh, the beautiful part of it is that we are constantly setting up uh, appointments, you know, book signs and things like that you can do. But you have to get out there and do those kinds of things. You have to do that marketing. You have to make that online presence. You really have to, to make that happen. And it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And you don't have a big giant machine behind you. And so you have to create that platform. You have to maintain that platform. And you have to publish it. So it's, it's, it has to be done. I, I probably said this before to this group, um, but uh, I sold my first book to a really small New York publishing house that did not edit me at all, at all. In fact, my books came out not just with all my mistake, my own mistakes in them and lousy writing, um, but 87 added typos in the first one in 89. I know because I went through page after page. You know, was I neurotic back in 1984? Yes. Um, all my mistakes are in print. I learned to write with my books being published. Mm -hmm. And folks, this is not a good way to feel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's not a good way to build an audience. Um, I went to my first writer's conference when my fifth book was about to be published and I heard people talking about revision letters and getting their manuscript back, and I turned to a friend and I said, I think I'm getting cheated. And I'm glad that was my attitude. I didn't know it was a good attitude at the time. Um, then I did sell to a new publishing house, and I got the entire, this is in the olden days, you, none of you folks will, maybe a few people will recognize this, but I actually got the manuscript back with blue pencil marks all over every single page, and a seven page revision letter, and I just thought, I'm just the worst writer that ever came down the pike. And um, then somebody said, oh, you only got seven pages. You must be good. <laughs> but, um, but if you're going to indie, the biggest mistake I'm seeing besides very lousy covers, because if you go on Amazon, you can usually pick out the indie published um, because people have not spent the money they needed to spend uh, to get a good cover. Um, but the biggest mistake that I'm seeing are people are rushing to publish books that are not ready to be published, right. that should not be published. Right. Um, I have many friends who wrote 10 or more novels before they sold their first, first book mm -hmm. to be published. Mm -hmm. And so if you're going to be indie published, you're going to have to be that stop for yourself. Yeah. You're going to have to be the... The, the fence that stops you from getting out there when you are not ready or that book is not ready. You need to hire that professional editor. Yes, you do. Um, to, because we can't 
you can't see the forest for the trees. You've been so involved in this project, and so the, what most of us have heard that are at least are in traditional publishing, we've all heard the line, oh, I love the book, but, <laughs> and, then you get, and then you get to work, and you're gonna have to hire somebody that's gonna give you the but, mm -hmm. and, and say, okay, now this is, what's, this is what's wrong, and then you have to be able to do the work yourself. And, and that's where having that, that team comes in, because you, I've only heard of one person, uh, Dr. James Dobson from Focus on the Family, uh, made the statement that he self-edits, that when he turned his manuscripts in, they're published ready. And I haven't heard about who disputed him, so but he's the only one I've ever heard like most say are, that. Man. Yeah, um, <laughs> but I tell you, it's you need that team. E either you're going to do it through a partnership, you're going to do it through traditional, or you're going to do it through indie, where you hire the package. But you're you're going to have to have that team if you want to produce work that is is market ready. And the worst thing you can do for all of us when we're non-traditional publishers. Uh, work is to release work that's not ready. Yes, mm -hmm. it hurts all of us. Mm -hmm. So take your time. I had a one of our last clients. I had a young man from Seattle. He sent me his manuscript, and I told him, I said, "This is not ready." He said, "I just want you to go through it." I said, "We'll go through it, but we'll we'll do the edit the one time. But you understand that this edit works in layers. When we work this, it reveals things that need to be worked." It's not a once and you're done. And, oh no, I just want to do this. I'm like, okay, you can contract me with me to do this one edit if that's what you want, but your book is not ready. And I spoke to him for about a month, two, about two months between him and his wife, and their decision was they want to go ahead and publish. And I said, okay, my name is not on it anywhere. Do you understand this? Because I'm telling you, it's not ready. He had a great story. A great story, but the the book was it just wasn't ready, and so you have to have that. What Robin is saying, you have to have that, and you have to respect that too, because that is for your good. You don't want to release it if it's not ready. Thank you all. That's great information. Does anybody in the audience have any questions? Yes. I'm Claudia, and my question is, my book had has pictures in it, real-life pictures. And I would love to have them in it where they um, illustrate the story. Um, I've realized it's okay if they're black and white, and I want them in it, not in the middle altogether. Hmm. And one idea I had is I had a um, program that changed my pictures into cartoons, you know, into line drawings. And I thought, well, then that wouldn't be too expensive to publish. But what do you have to say about including pictures? The people who read me right now say they love the pictures. So I want to make sure I... And what, I love the pictures. What kind of book are we talking about? Well, I have a couple, but the one that has the most pictures in it, I've been on a, a grand horse adventure, and I call them my adventure emails. And I'm just writing back to my friends in Ohio about how my adventure's going. 
And my friends in Ohio are the ones who said, you need to have a book. And I'm just getting that feedback enough, even from my mother, who never <laughs> says nice things. <laughs> she even said. <laughs> so I, in a way, my book, that book is very much written. It needs to be put together. Well, in answer to your question about the pictures, you can, you can work with a company like Create Space, which is an independent publisher, and they will do a custom formatting for you uh, with pictures where you want them. You pay for it. Mm -hmm. You you pay for the more you put in, the more you pay. But they will work with you, and so there are and there are, there are other companies like that that will do that and you can do custom formatting so it's not a it's not a question of can I or can I do it you can do it you just have to have the budget you know and, and a friend of ours we all know Donna Fletcher Crow said something to me once she said you can do anything as long as you do it well and so the question is will the pictures help the manuscript or will it be a distraction in the manuscript? So those are things you have to look at as well. Um, so when it comes to adding pictures to a, to a, depending on what type of book it is, that's why I asked earlier, if it's a, uh, intended to be a novel of such, you know, pictures may or may not help the telling of the story. If it's a tabletop book, that's a, that puts it in a different category. So you, you have to ask yourself the question, what is your goal for the finished product? What are you trying to do with it? Uh, just because you can do a thing doesn't necessarily mean that you should. So uh, ask yourself that question first. And then like Patrick was saying, there are, that's just a question of, of editing and laying out page setup. Those things can happen. But ask yourself if it's something you really need to have done and how much. If you're trying to go traditional, um, picture photos are going to be, it's going to be tough. Um, you know, I, I've tried to help some children's authors with illustrations, connect with publishers, um, and major best-selling authors like a Francine Rivers, um, their children's books just have not, you know, sold what was expected. Um, so those are tough. Um, now, if they're black and white photos, that's just a print issue, but you still have to have um, decent DPI, mm -hmm. and so that's going to increase the cost, the cost and that's going to that's gonna cause a traditional publisher to probably just right away just say no. So then you're looking at, if you're going to ind independently publish, like with Create Space, um, then you're looking at, at and you, you may end up with the cost of the book that you have to charge being 15, 16, 17 dollars and when it gets that high um, you're not going to sell uh, very many copies. So those are just the, those are just the facts and, and then you just have to get, gather the information and then make the best inf decision for yourself. I do have a children's book with some pictures in it, but they're just sketches, black and white sketches, and that didn't change the cost of printing at all. Um, black and white sketches yeah. did not change the Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, thank you. Um, we'll turn a little corner here. This person asks, um, publishers want books that are marketable yet original. How does one balance familiar with unpredictable? <laughs> I heard uh, Nick Harrison, Patrick's editor. Was he your editor? Hmm? Was Nick Harrison your editor? Yes, he was. Okay. He, he listed, um, I think it was 10 things not to do or something like that. And he said, one, don't go too outside the box. Number two, don't stay too inside the box. <laughs> so I think that's really a question for all of us. Yeah. <laughs> Can we do that? Well, Nick's an interesting editor because he's, he's very conservative and uh, really helped me learn to write. A good editor will always help you learn to write better. And Nick was, is, uh, was the senior editor at Harvest House for 25 years, I guess, and a, and a good friend, and yet unrelenting and merciless. I mean, he would send me back revision letters. Uh, the first book I wrote, I sent him an 80,000 word manuscript, and he said, this is great, I need 20,000 more words. <laughs> you know, and so that's, with, and he would say, in my second book, I wrote in a scene where a family was being massacred by Indians, and he sent me back a note and said, nope, your women readers are not gonna read that. So I had to write it out of the story. And uh, now that I'm an indie publisher, I wrote it back into my latest book. <laughs> so, but, but yeah, it, an editor will tell you, uh, will we'll give you a certain amount of leeway, but he'll also be working from the place where he knows the people who read the books that his company puts out. Right. He knows he's been, he's, he gets feedback from them all the time, he gets letters, he talks to them at conferences, he knows the market. And so he is gonna guide you, try to guide you safely through the pitfalls into the place where you can be a, where you can be free, and yet you can write within the parameters that are required for that genre and that market. I was going to say he's an agent now, and he's still struggling with this because I see his posts, and he's like, "I love this book, but I don't know if I can take it and represent it because it won't sell mm -hmm. in the market." And I think that's really a struggle for all of us. Mm -hmm. We write um, with genre fiction. Literary fiction is the only one where you can get away, and I say that in quotes because it's, you don't always get away with it, um, to mess with readers' expectations. Mm -hmm. Readers go into whatever the genre is with expectations, mm -hmm. and you have to, if you're gonna write a mystery, by the end of that mystery, your protagonist has to solve that mystery, or you are not meeting the reader's expectation. Mm -hmm. um, in a romance, Guess what? The hero and the heroine are going to get together at the end of the book, and there's going to be, you know, a hope for a happily ever after. That's the reader expectation. Um, and so, if you don't deliver, that's when you hear about somebody throwing a book across the room. I mean, I there's a certain author I will no longer read since it's being recorded. I won't say. Um, I mean, she outsells me by gazillion books, so she doesn't care. But um, every one of her books ends sad. This is in the mainstream market. And, um, and I finally read one book and I was just so angry and I said, I'm done. I, I won't read her anymore because um, she's a wonderful writer and the stories were really interesting and then doggone it, 
you know, you, you kill off one of the beloved characters. And um, you knew that, I knew that it was coming, and so why, I'm not gonna spend my money to buy your books anymore. Um, if, if you write horror or sci-fi or whatever, there are expectations from your readers and you need to deliver. That doesn't mean that every romance ends exactly the same um, or is told exactly the same. Um, so another question that often gets asked of writers, which I think is a really dumb question, is have you written the book of your heart? <laughs> well, excuse me, but if what I'm going to spend six months to a year working on a book, it's it is a book of my heart. Exactly. Yes. And this so this one is that one. This one, this one is my favorite book right now, <laughs> and uh, these characters and so forth. So um, you can write the book of your heart every single time and still write to the genre mm -hmm. expectations. Mm -hmm. And like it or not, now I know Peter, I think, writes literary fiction. Is that not, am I not true on that? But not necessarily. You don't kill everybody off at the end. That's, that's what too often literary comes to me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He goes, I was thinking about it. At least one survives. But when you write for genre, um, oftentimes that you have a better chance of selling more books. That's also because you can go into this in the bookstore or on Amazon or wherever, that's where it's shelved. Mm -hmm. And when you write outside of a genre, the bookstore doesn't know where to put you, Amazon doesn't know what categories to put on it, um, your publisher, if you're traditionally published, they don't quite know um, how to write even the back cover copy. <laughs> um, and so it's, it's a challenge. And, and then for the author who wants to write outside of a genre, um, they have to also work on how to present their book to a publisher or present their book uh, when they're marketing it. Um, and it creates an extra level of, of work. Um, for people, you have to be ready for that for that challenge. I consider we have subgenres within Christian fiction, uh, but I really think Christian fiction is a genre in itself. Mm -hmm. In that Christian fiction, what sets us apart is that we have hope. Mm -hmm. That's what sets yeah. Christian fiction apart. Um, even if you have. Um, uh, I don't always wrap up everything in a nice, pretty little bow at the end of my books because I don't know of anybody in life who everything gets wrapped up with a pretty little bow. So um, that's not what Christian fiction means. But something in the ending is going to leave so. the reader with hope. Yeah. Right. And so, um, so I think that sets us apart. The point that Robin's making is really good because I write Amish fiction. And like I said, I'm one of about six men who do. And most Amish fiction is written by women who write stories that always come out right just because the characters are Amish. 
And they're these perfect, what we call lighthearted romances. And, and I don't like to write lighthearted romances. I read too much Zane Grey when I was a kid. <laughs> and so I like to write adventure. And I like to, they're like, there has to be real conflict and desperate situations. And so I wrote my Amish books that way. And it took me a while, it took a while for Amish readers to kind of get where I was coming from. I stayed within the Amish genre by Googling everything <laughs> I wanted to say about the Amish. I knew nothing about them, I knew nothing about quilting, but I did enough research so that I could enclose my adventure story inside of the Amish genre enough so that people who read Amish books like my stories because it was it, it met their expectation about Amish to a certain point. And then they kind of went, whoa, where did that come from? You know, mm -hmm. which I think all of us want to be that word. But that's a good kind of yeah. surprise. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, what uh, kind of speaks to this issue, uh, how many of you guys are Star Trek fans? Okay. I have to confess, I'm a Trekkie. <laughs> and I would always watch, just talking about the original Star Trek now, this, those are still my favorite. And I, yeah, I would watch those and I knew two things about every episode. I knew that Spock and Kirk and McCoy, those guys genuinely loved each other. There was a real bromance happening there. <laughs> and I also knew, no matter how bad things got, at the end of that 60 minutes, the Enterprise was going home and all the crew was going with them. Mm -hmm. No matter what happened, you can take Spock's brain. <laughs> and they, no, the guys in the red shirt, they were just, they were exposed. Disposable. They were disposable. <laughs> you could take Spock's brain, it didn't matter. At the end of the show, he'll have his brain back and it's gonna be working. Yeah, right. So that expectation is real because when Spock died in The Wrath of Khan, that wasn't cool. <laughs> Because I was leaving the next morning to go on a six-month tour to Japan, and I was mad for six months. So, <laughs> so, uh, so when you're writing like that, you really do have to take those things into consideration because I've done that before where I've gotten to the end of a book and was so mad I just threw it away. Mm -hmm. It's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, because the writer sets you up and then they just let you go. It's just like, no, I don't like that. And so I try not to do that when I write. I mean, you don't have to, I believe you, like you said, it doesn't have to be clean, but it does have to lead somewhere. You can't leave your, your audience hanging. You can't leave your reader hanging. It's not fair to them to have them invest, you know, for 85, 90,000 words and then leave them hanging. It's just not fun. And don't kill off the hero of your first book. Don't let him die in the third book. <laughs> I learned that. <laughs> Readers don't forgive that. Yep. You can and you can kill as actually as many people as you want, but never kill a kitten or a puppy. Yes. Mm -hmm. Just this is a good thing to know. Yes. Or a baby. Never the horse in a western. Yeah. <laughs> certain things I'm still things traumatized by Dances with Wolves, the wolf and the horse. Yeah. I mean, I didn't care about all the people dying, but the horse and the wolf did. Yeah. <laughs> so, Peter, this question is for you. Living life and writing, how do they mesh? <laughs> they don't. Yes, <laughs> Peter, tell us. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
writing, especially with a family, is difficult because writing, um, when you're, you're passionate about it and all you think about is writing, and when you sit down and write, you are telling your family you love writing more than you love the family. And it's difficult because this art has to come out. It must come out. And so you need to wait until your family is asleep, good and asleep, and then you can pull out your laptop and write as fast as you can until you fall asleep. It doesn't mesh. It doesn't mesh. But you learn your spouse's secret loves. Like, my wife wants to be listened to. So she gets time, and I listen to her 100%. And when that's satisfied, then I can go do my thing. <laughs> yes. Any other comments? You know, when I started, um, I had a full-time job. I was a single mom. And... Um, I had a very set schedule. I came home from work, I fixed dinner, the girls did the dishes, and I went down to write from seven to nine. But I had a completely open door policy, so there was, they could interrupt me anytime. And I learned that you can, you can be burning down a mansion and then stop and deal with, uh, with a teenager's you know, angst over something and then go right back to it. You can train your brain to do these things. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, you set yourself a, a schedule and you you set your priorities though you know when you do have a family yes. uh, you have to have the right priorities um, mm -hmm. I mean Saturday mornings I could write because they were you know teens and preteens and they're sleeping in anyway they, they didn't <laughs> care what I was doing on Saturday morning um, but um, you can train your brain you can make an appointment with your brain to say that I am going to write at such a certain time, mm -hmm. and in, and if you make it in a certain place as well, mm -hmm. even if it's the corner of a living room or down in the basement next to the furnace, um, you can train your brain that when I show up at this time in this place, it's going to be serious writing time and you'll go into that writing mode so much faster mm -hmm. um, than if you just are haphazard. I write with my eyes closed. When I close my eyes, I'll just start typing, and then I'm right in the mode. But I also try and read from 75 to 100 books a year. Um, with literary fiction, you just need to keep pouring it in. And so, and these are books like Plato and... <laughs> Light reading. Light reading, yeah. <laughs> Light reading is C.S. Lewis. And so you just find time when you can. Always yes. have a book with you. I was going to say, structure is good, but sometimes you can't be... I'm not as organized as Robin. Sometimes <laughs> I'm writing at jump time. You know, kids bouncing all over the place. Or, you know, in the car while I wait for a kid at school. Mm -hmm. So you can be flexible that way, too. Yeah. You know, I have a, an office in my basement at home that I created just for writing. Man cave. It's not even, I mean, it's my, my oldest son, I kicked him out of the house, so I took his bed. <laughs> um, and it's beautiful. It has everything you need to write. Except for when I went down in the basement, my wife would come look for me. <laughs> and so what I did was I took my laptop back to the kitchen table, and I write at the kitchen table. And so she'll come by sometime, and she'll just, okay, and she moves on. But if she had to come downstairs, then she'd stop and tell me, like, oh, nothing. I'm like, oh, oh, you sure? Yeah. But when I'm there, the family just kind of work 
surround me. If I'm not visible, then they come looking for me. So okay. my wife and daughter. And comfortable kitchen chairs tend to keep you awake while you're riding. That's true. I, I like to ride at the kitchen table too. So you just you just make it work. Uh, so I don't know if there's a perfect time. <laughs> I write early morning, late night. Mm -hmm. early morning. Yeah. Lisa has small children yes. at home. I'm sure your life's a little bit different than the others. So my first Harlequin book I wrote, um, my, she's now, she'll be nine in June. She was in kindergarten and then my five-year-old was four. No, five-year-old was little. He would take an afternoon nap while she was at PM kindergarten and that was my writing time. And he, sometimes that nap was 15 minutes and sometimes it was, you know, the whole stretch and I'm waking him up and then we're gonna go pick her up. So, and I just learned that that's my time and I, that's not my time to do the laundry or the dishes or tidy up, you know, that's my time to write. I can do laundry when they're awake and, or anything else. Um, so it's just that having that dedicated, this is my writing time and I don't go on Facebook and you know, I sh it's like, I leave my phone we have a, put an office in the back of our garage and I'll leave my phone in the house and go in the, in the garage office just because it's like segregated, like unless there's a fire, do not come and bother me. <laughs> um, so now he's, so he goes to preschool three mornings a week and then she's at school. So that's my writing time and sometimes I have to walk my dog. But you just, I don't know, sometimes you sit down and it just blows and you can write 4,000 words and mm. then go pick somebody up from school. And sometimes you sit down and it's like 150 words and it's been an hour and a half and you're like banging your head on the table. But I outline very, very heavily and I write a lot of notes and that's what helps me because I can write notes or think about it while I'm doing anything, laundry, dishes, I can sit and stand there and with my stir and whatever and writing notes. And then when I sit down to write, I am typing the whole time. Um, so it's that like doing the prep work means that when I write it, you don't have to think about it because it's already written down there and you've got like snippets of dialogue and funny things you thought of a week ago and different things like that. So that's where outlining I have found because even if you sit down to write and your brain's like, you have a headache or you're really tired or you just like, I can't even think, it's there, it's written. So you're like, oh, now I'm gonna say this. And then you read the next part and you're like, oh, now I'm gonna say this. Oh, now they're gonna go there. And you have already done all that thinking through the scene. And sometimes you even think of like extra things like you're foreshadowing something for later. Um, but kind of always what I thought about was, you know, if, I can do as much as I can. I can't do more than that. And I can't have the attitude that, you know, you guys are stopping me from writing because, you know, that's not the right attitude. And now it's like ministry. I lead worship at Calvary Chapel Meridian and my husband works for the church and they're building a church right now. So he's gone all the time, way more than normal. Um, and so, you know, my time's even more spliced up between ministry now. So, you know, I have the time that I have and I have to use it to the best of my ability and I get done what I get done, which is why I like indie publishing because there's so much more freedom to go with my schedule. Um, my son broke his leg. I was gonna start I was gonna start a book and he broke his leg and for a month I sat on the, the living room floor 
because I had to carry him to the bathroom and back because <laughs> he couldn't even walk or like scoot around or anything. Um, and I just wrote notes. And that was like my fastest first draft was, you know, two months later, I wrote 105,000 words in six weeks because I had thought about it for a month and wrote notes and daydreamed and figured out different things. So, you know, that's where outlining is. My friend, it doesn't work for everybody, but I like it. Great, thank you all. Um, somebody asked, does every writer need an agent? Apparently not. <laughs> <laughs> Never managed to do that. I always get a no. One day I'll get an agent just because it's a principal now. <laughs> I think if you're, you're going to traditional publish, um, there are a few houses still um, who have a slush pile, but they are so rare. Um, because publishers have cut their staff so much that they don't have those first readers anymore going through those slush piles and so they depend on agents to be their first readers and that's that's really the big reason why they've just closed the door to um, uh, it helps if you go to writers conferences and make a a connection with an editor there. Sometimes you can bypass. Um, I recommend an agent, if it's a good agent, and there are lots of bad ones. Lots of bad ones. Um, but it's nice with a traditional publisher that um, every time something is going well, I speak directly with my editor. And any time there's a problem, I speak with my agent, and my agent speaks with me. <laughs> so I remain on a good relationship basis um, with my editor, no matter what's going on. Uh, you know, like if I get a really bad cover, and I can, you know, go to my agent, and then she can go and say, "This is a really bad cover," right. um, and it, it's fixed. So. Um, having an agent that can be your champion and also today the traditional publishing market is it isn't that we like my agent says it it isn't that we don't know what it's going to look like next year it's what we don't we don't know what it's going to look like next month right that's how volatile it is yeah. and so if you have a really good agent that is up on what's happening in the publishing business um, it offers you some protection and safety going into yeah. the future. But here's the good news. Even the best agents don't really know mm. what's going to be popular next month. And so if you're writing something and you, you're invested in it and you really know it's a good story, keep writing it. Uh, don't try to say, well, what's selling now? Because if you try to write mm -hmm. for what's selling now, you're already behind. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. And the other thing about agents is, agents are good if they're invested in you. But if they're not invested in you, then they're not gonna help you. If you're in a stable of clients, of 100, 200 clients and the, maybe 
10 of those are selling books, that's where the, the grease is going to go. So find an agent. If you want to find an agent, then Robin's uh, suggestion is the very best one. Go to writers conferences and build relationships. That's how I met my editor. That's how I met my agent at writers conferences after about four years of going to that conference. I finally built a relationship with those people to where they said, you know, I want to invest in your work. So it's writing is just like anything else. It's it's relationship. Your relationship with your readers, your relationship with your publisher, with your editor, with your agent. It's all, and, and, and so writers are very relational people. I mean, we, it looks like we're like secretive little people who, but we're not. I want people, when they pick up my book, I want them to open their life to what I have to say. That's my goal. And I want them to, at the end of the book, say, you know what? He had some, some good stuff to say. And so that's relational. So your relationship with your agent has got to be the same way. With your editor, it's got to be the same way. And the other thing is, you're the writer, push back. If you don't like the way things are going, push back. They're not the, the gods of the world. You know, God is the god of this world. <laughs> So you got, you got the liberty to say, you know, it was funny, in my first book, I had a, a place in my book called Jepson's Pond. And Nick kept wanting to change it to Jepson Pond. And I fought with him for six months. And finally, when I got my galley proof, it said Jepson Pond. And I crossed it out with red ink and I said, this place is called Jepson's Pond. <laughs> I mean, it's a simple little thing, right? But, but you're the writer. So you stand your ground, write your book. Don't try to sell into what's selling. Just write your book. And if the Lord is, is with you and it's time, you'll sell it. It's his book anyway, right? Also, if you just stay up on the industry, there's, if you don't have an agent, there's other opportunities. There's contests. Um, I know Nick Harrison, if you're on his blog, I think like in January, he'll say, hey, I'm opening January up if you want to send me something. Um, I think uh, Thomas Nelson, their YA um, line, they just opened up a month for submissions. So if you have your book written and ready and it's good, there will be opportunities. In general, general market, you must have an agent. They don't want, to, they don't want it to speak with the author. General market definitely needs an agent. No. Okay, so now let's talk about marketing. Yeah. Uh, what does marketing involve, and how do you handle that aspect of your work? Could you say that again? What does marketing involve, oh. and how do you handle that aspect of your work? I love marketing. <laughs> I love marketing. Actually, I use it as uh, because I like to write humor. Um, it's a great time just to have fun. Sarcasm doesn't work in writing. Irony does. So, but it's a good time. Uh, Facebook. Uh, the Bible says, "Go where the people are," and they're on Facebook. They're on Twitter. They're on blogs. They're on the internet. 
So get a Facebook account. Mm -hmm. There's no excuse not to. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to use that. It's biblical. It's biblical. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> you need to have all these accounts. It's where the people are. And so go to them and give them your work. Um, here's, here's my take on... Uh, I'm mostly speaking traditional, although I've done a little bit of the indie, but um, it so much more falls on the authors in traditional publishing than they ever did before. Yep. And most of it, I mean, the publishers want to know, okay, how many friends and fans do you have on Facebook and how many followers on Twitter and so forth. Every single marketing plan, I have to supply those numbers. Um, my, okay, I have 15,500 fans on Facebook. Do I think that I sell books to very many of those people? No, I don't think I pick up a lot of new people. I think these are mostly my fans who are already there, who are already gonna buy my books. So what I am doing with them is maintaining that relationship. Mm -hmm. That's what they want. They want to feel like Robin is their, the Robin that they think they know because they've read my books. Mm -hmm. um, they already think they're my friend because they've, they've built a relationship through reading right. this book. So you and so, so what I'm doing is continue, you know, um, I'm not trying to, I'm not on there posting, um, you should post no more than probably 15% about your book. The rest of the time, go ahead and share those cat pictures and cute videos of the dogs, you know, and so forth. Because that is the relationship thing. When you can laugh together, when you can um, share something of interest about your family or, or a beautiful sunset or whatever, um, of course, I'm very overtly Christian on, on mine. You're not going to be on my Facebook page and, and not know where I stand right. with, you know, with the Lord. So, um, but, um, but my posts about my own work, about my books, are, are very few. Uh, of course, naturally, if I've, got a, if I've got a Kindle book going on 99 cents, they're very appreciative, you know, that I let them know that it's going on 99 cents. But to constantly try and sell sell your book is it's a death thing. So mm -hmm. you don't want to do that. Yeah, death is eternal. Then buy my book, buy my book, buy my book. Yeah, <laughs> she's she's absolutely right. You you have to and like it's what what I just was saying about relationship. Mm -hmm. Your fans are they consider themselves to be your family, you know, in a very strange way because they think they know you through the book, and so you try to be. Friendly. If they're your friend, then be friendly. I think the Bible says that, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, the, other, the other thing is um, build your mailing list. Yes. Your mailing list is probably the most important promotional thing that you can have because that's where you can sell. When you put out your mailing list, it's not your Facebook page. Your mailing list is, I got my book, it's coming out, May 1st and here it is and MailChimp is a great way to do that and you can have graphics and you can also it can also be 
put posted on your Facebook page and on your Twitter account and and so but my mailing list is what I cultivate and like I have probably about 3,000 uh, connections on LinkedIn and what I found that they're good for is mining them and asking them personally one by one if I can put them on my mailing list hmm. because you can't just mail to your LinkedIn connections that's against the rules so so that is something that everybody who wants to sell books needs to do is start building your mailing list right now if you have a website put a pop-up there that pops up and says oh by the way don't put a pop-up I, 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 I refuse to and I know so many people that refuse mm -hmm. to visit websites that have pop-ups yeah. don't do a pop-up I, I disagree with you there okay. um, it turns off a lot of people but okay let me, I'm sorry, I interrupted. No, that's all right. <laughs> but and then I'll the go back and things, say why I The two disagree. things you control are your website and your yes. mailing list. Yes. Facebook can disappear tomorrow. Twitter can disappear tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Instagram, Pinterest, whatever your thing is, can go away. Or they can start charging. Mm -hmm. You can control your website and your mailing list. Yeah. So on your website, do have your sign up for your newsletter. In fact, think of it, if you're doing your own website, F, the le capital letter F, think of that capital letter F, and you want your website sign up to be on the lower bar of that capital letter F at the end, on that right-hand side. The I naturally goes to the F, but there's something about that second bar on the F. I design websites as a secondary thing, so. Um, I've studied this and, and that is the, a great place to put it and don't just put it on your home page, put it on every page. Mm -hmm. um, because you just, you want them to sign up, you want to remember and give them something for free, write a little short story and make it a PDF and, and say when you sign up for my newsletter get, you'll get the short story for free. No, on the other side of that, <laughs> I, get a, I get about uh, five to ten sign-ups for my mailing list off my little pop-up a week, which is, a, which is pretty productive for people who are just coming and visiting my website. So, But does it continue to pop up once they've no. registered? Nope. Okay, then you have a good pop-up. I design websites, too. Too many, people, <laughs> too many people don't do that. I have no. somebody design my website. <laughs> It, uh, yeah, you, if you design your own website or you have somebody do it, you, you set it up so that a person, the site recognizes their IP and once they've visited your site one time and seen the pop-up, they never see it again. Hmm. Too many people don't do that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and you're right, if it comes up every time you refresh the page, it's going to drive you crazy. But if you come into the page and you say, Welcome to my website. Uh, thanks for stopping by. Would you just like to take a moment and sign up? And then they can either close it with, there's a big X there, they can close it. And once they close it, they never see it again. But you still have on the page the opportunity to sign up on the website. Mailing list. Um, just one more thing about websites. Probably the biggest thing that readers want to know and why they would go and visit your website is to know what book is coming next and when it's coming out. And so I actually noticed, I think it's Brandy Lynn Collins has a page on her website that says coming next. 
so you can always go up there go and check that you know regularly and see you know when's her next book coming out what is it about do i want to buy that um so yeah put you know put stuff about yourself and put um your books and where they can find them um but always make sure it's always up to date because a lot of authors don't update their websites so it's like you know six months ago or a year ago's information and they've had two books out since then um and they never updated it and so you know your readers want to know what book is coming next and how long do i have to wait before because mm -hmm. that's what i want to know as a reader so and then um probably the biggest thing about marketing is you have to balance um how much work is it gonna is this thing gonna be um and how much am I going to get out of it? Um, I can spend, you know, $400 on a BookBub ad and I'll make that back in five minutes. But it's really hard to get a BookBub ad. Whereas I can write, you know, 15 or 30 blog posts and take, you know, a month out of my time just blogging um, and sell three books. So you have to balance yep. how long is it going to take and what am I going to get out of it? Um, it's probably the biggest thing about marketing. Yeah. Facebook ads are really a, a, a good investment too. They're very inexpensive. You can put all the information about your book up on a, on your. I have a personal page and an author page. Personal page is where I do most of my sharing the cat pictures and the beautiful sunsets, and I do. <laughs> The author page is where, where it's basically information about my books. I also post excerpts from my books there. When I'm about to publish a book, I'll, a, a month or two before, I'll start giving little teasers about the book, and people, my fans like those. Uh, but I can boost that post. I can set up a post that says the book is coming out or it's available here, and you can boost that post. Uh, I ran a post, I ran a, a Facebook ad on the Amish heiress in, from September to December. I spent $400 and it reached over 25,000 people. Now, did I sell books to all those people? No. Mm -hmm. But they all saw the ad. So that's something to look into is Facebook ads. Thank you all. This has been really good information. I have lots more questions, but I think we're out of time. Is that right? Can I ask one question? How does this affect your relationship with God? Because we're Christians. I would say, I would say it, what, every book, it's something different. And it's always like what I'm processing in my walk with the Lord is like what the character is struggling with. So it's like grasping that, I have to like wrestle out that concept as the character is doing that. And every single time I'm like, you know, learning something or figuring out like how to say it or, you know, how it's kind of like, how do, I, how do I explain that to somebody or, and so it's just really, it's almost like journaling because, you know, I'm processing what God is teaching me through those characters or situations or all kinds of so I would say it kind of mirrors it and it helps me to grasp whatever it is that God's trying to teach me. So. And I think for me personally, I was mentioning this to Peter earlier, um, it's part of the whole. You know, writing can be a very consuming passion. It spreads out 
tendrils in every part of your life. So the question that I ask myself is, is what I'm doing, Lord, glorifying you? Or am I building a kingdom to myself? Mm -hmm. And so I always have to go back to that and say, okay, Lord, uh, I look at the patriarchs and David was a shepherd. That was his business until he became king. But that business is what he did to glorify the Lord. Abraham was a shepherd. Daniel was a politician, a businessman, statesman. Uh, so when I look at writing and publishing, I ask this question. Lord, am I, am I keeping everything in its proper place? It's a tool in my hand. Am I using that tool to glorify God? And that's the question, that's more important than the book sales or anything else, or because if what you're doing honors the Lord, that has eternal reward. And for me, that becomes the, balance, the balancing point. Um, how do I make sure that Ray stays in right relationship with God? Because the rest of it really doesn't matter. It just really doesn't long term. Um, I agree with Lisa that this is this has to be an outreach of your life. It can't be something you add as an addendum, or your books won't even have the, the taste of reality. Yeah. Uh, if it's not real to you, it won't be real in your in your writing. And so, for me, yeah, you say, how does it impact my relationship with God? In every way, it has mm -hmm. to, or it's not real. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I have two imperatives as a writer. A Christian writer, because I am a Christian writer. <laughs> uh, the first one is to present the gospel of Jesus Christ as clearly and succinctly as I can so that people get it without preaching at them. So i got to weave that into my story, and every book that I've written presents the gospel some way or another. The other imperative I have is to preserve our language in the face of a tech world that is instantly gratifying itself with shortened language and misspelled words and you know a complete disregard of the beauty of the English language. And so those are the two things that I always keep before me. Can people come to Christ through my book? And can they understand that we have one of the most beautiful languages that ever existed on the face of the earth? And if I get that across in my book, I'm, I'm doing what my imperative as a writer is. Um, I'm like, Lisa, whatever God's taking me through at the time or something that he's taken me through in the past mm -hmm. um, is part of my work. It's part of my my books, yes. um, because what I'm sh I'm sharing, what God has taught me. Uh, all writers have a worldview, and what what a writer does is say, um, "Come, join me, and see the world as I see it." And that's whether you're a Christian or not. Everybody has a worldview, um, and so what I'm sharing is is my love of the Lord and what what He has taught me at any at any given time, mm -hmm. um, and. And he called me out of a secular career. Come on. And, and so this is a ministry for me. Um, I, I don't know that, I can't say that every Christian who is a writer feels that it's a ministry, mm -hmm. but it's a ministry um, to me. Mm -hmm. And so um, I try to, 
to walk that out as, as anybody who's been called to any type of ministry walks it out. Amen. You know, C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite quotes, not to step on your toes, but uh, C.S. Lewis said, I don't believe in Christian writers. I believe in writers who are Christians who write good fiction. And, and that's, just, you know, that's just a passion of my life. I, if, it, if it doesn't glorify God, it's just not worth doing. Uh, there's not a dollar amount you can put on that. So, and if you're not going through it, you can't, I'm sorry, you can't lie that good. <laughs> if, uh, if you haven't experienced the grace of God, you can't tell me about it. If you don't know what it's like to be in that pit and have God pull you out, you can't tell me what's that like. And so to put that on a page and have somebody get it, you don't get any better than that. You know, so, yeah. The deepest, deepest parts of my life, I have written entire books around them. In fact, one I took over 10 years of journals and just really poured myself into that novel personally and um, and those are the books that have ministry value. Um, I get lots of great feedback from, from all of my stories because all of them are infused with, with scripture and my love of the Lord. Um, but the ones that I've poured in those deepest places that God has um, walked me through those deep places. Amen. Uh, those are the things that will change the world. I'm currently reading The Faith by Chuck Colson, Charles Colson. And I'm right in the section right now where he's talking about um, we don't have any, Christianity doesn't have anything to offer anybody if we haven't been in the pit mm -hmm. and, and had God walk us through it. Amen. Um, and I just, that's <laughs> been my experience in life, and so that's one of the things that I have to share. I'll just say real quick. I don't know what I'm doing, so I have to do it with God. Every day I have to spend time with him. Say, you know, I give over scenes, like what's gonna happen here? Or I give over, you know, publishing opportunities or conferences, I don't know what I'm doing. And he's gonna work in mysterious ways, so I just have to walk with him through it all. Lead me, Jesus, lead me. <laughs> and I believe God gave, well, I don't have to believe it. The Bible says that God gave us work before the fall. And so my day job is the weeds, and the job that gave, God gave me is the storytelling. It's just ingrained in me so much, and I don't put Christ in my story. Um, if my life isn't Christ, it's within Christ itself, then my story isn't going to reflect him. So it shouldn't naturally flow out of me. Mm -hmm. you know, one of the greatest compliments I had from a, one of the guys I work with who read one of my books, and uh, he loves mysteries. He bought one of my Nate Richards books, and he says, he said, I bought the book, and I started reading it, and I went, oh, man, this is a Christian book. And he said, he bought it, so he kept reading, he goes, he goes, and what I realized, right? He goes, this guy is, it's not one of those Christian books. Says, this guy is a cop who's a Christian. He said, so that's just how he processed life, huh? I go, yeah. I said, instead of going to the bar, he went to prayer. He goes, yeah, he said, that's pretty cool. He said, I really like that. That was pretty. And I thought, see, there it goes. It became something not, you know, 
a Christian book, quote unquote, was a, is a, a guy who's dealing with life situations who needed the Lord and that reflected in his character. So, um, One of my favorite reviews was from a lady who was not a Christian. Mm -hmm. And she said, I read this book, I'm not a believer, but there are spiritual values in this book that I can live by. Step closer. Right? Yeah. Step closer. What a privilege. Good question. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Why don't we give them a hand?